Greetings all and welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Quest On Media. I'm your host, Russell Morris. Um, we have not had a conversation on this show in quite some time uh, on the state of, let's say, the state of the nation. State of the nation? State of the union? Is that a good way to put it? Uh, during the years of the of the prior president, who's I've forgotten his name already, but uh, between 2016 and 2020, we had regular conversations because the sky was falling. Um, and then we kind of caught our breath and we had an election and we looked away for a minute. And then we looked back and things had changed. Things had changed. So it's time to have a conversation about what is going on right now in this country from coast to coast in Washington, D.C. Who is Joe Biden and who is the president? Uh, what's happening in Afghanistan? Of course, uh, a conversation about Afghanistan uh, we have to mention that it is the 20th anniversary of September 11th and all the reflection that that entails as it relates to Afghanistan. Texas is passing a lot of laws. Somebody told me this is the five-year anniversary of Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. All of these things are in the same web of consciousness as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and there's nobody else in the world that I'd rather talk to about these things than our friend, our political commentator, Travis Montez. Welcome to the show, Travis. Thank you for having me. I always love coming here and talking to you about this stuff. Madness. Yeah, I mean, we got to talk. I mean, at some point we have to talk about something fun, right? Or something positive or... Yeah, this is rough. It's a tough beat. It's a tough beat for you. You know what I mean? Like, Queston, we do a lot of pop culture stuff, you know, like the Geek 4 show is great. Yeah, see, you like pop culture. But yet every time we bring you here, it's to unpack the madness in the world. I know. I know. We're putting a lot of labor onto you. Um, So I do want to start... Uh, I would like to start by talking a little bit about what's happening in Texas right now, mm-hmm. um, because you know it ties it's into back the clock to like no one votes but white people yeah. and no abortions for anyone. They're like that's it. Uh, yeah, I think that language is uh, is in the legislation. Yeah, that's where we are in Texas. Uh, we are planning a show where we have a longer conversation about reproductive rights. And, and that's kind of a global story because as you know, uh, there was a big decision in Mexico recently that said having an abortion was not illegal. And that kind of changes the conversation in that country. Um, but I, I just want to talk about this conceptually, like what piece of the strategy is this, is this kind of the Republican machine recognizing like, all right, if you lose a national election, local power is what matters. Let's just jam all these laws through here now. I mean, yeah, I don't want to say I'm caught off is, guard. I think this is sort of the strategy that a lot of people have been warning us about all along, right? When we talk about voting in every election, when we talk about the importance of certain nominees and not protest voting necessarily, you know, we were sort of like the difference, but I remember when Clinton was running against, was running the, the, the difference, it was like, what's the difference? What would be the difference if she lost, right? And so it's like, oh, the difference would be Supreme Court nominees and people who are on the Supreme Court. And so what we're seeing is the power that lasts well beyond your, when you're out of the White House. You know, you've, you've packed the local courts, you've packed the, the federal district courts, you've packed the Supreme Court, and so it sends a signal that, yeah, you, this is the time that you want to begin testing, putting laws in place because we have the Supreme Court that we want that may not. This is the time. This is what they've been working for for decades. Yeah, I considered that many times. We've had a lot of conversations about the former president on this show. You and I have. Uh, and a lot of the times I said, you know, this guy's awful. Um, but he's not organized enough to like do anything. Do you know what I mean? Like my, my issue about him was like, you know, he he says a lot of really terrible things and he's kind of destroyed the discourse and like uh, polarized. I mean, we could list a lot of terrible things that he did, but in terms of like compared to like the, the Bush Cheney business where it's just like, Hey, let's just like invent a war and be at war forever. You know what I mean? Like that takes a lot of planning and organizing. He wasn't able to implement things like that. So my, I was kind of naively thinking, well, he won't really have a legacy. But uh, his legacy, in fact, is that he was able to stack the Supreme Court and that, you know, it didn't matter who who was president at that point. That was the argument a lot of people made. Any Republican president would have made the same decisions. Uh, I don't know. And I don't know that it matters, but it's a very important point 
uh, to remember that it's at, at this point, it seems a little bit less important who's president and a little bit more important who's on the bench. Is that fair to say, Travis? I think that's really accurate because right now we're going to see a lot of what the, what the Supreme Court decides to take, what it decides not to take in the decisions. I think people were, were really hopeful about some early Supreme Court decisions that came out that, you know, some of the more conservative judges didn't vote the way we expected. Um, and I think that lulled us into like a, a hopeful place. But then you have instances like this where like they didn't act. They were like, we're not taking it. We're not telling you why. And so now this this law, this this bill becomes law. And then and that's it. This is fucked. <laughs> like, yeah. right? And so unless. Uh, well, then I, I guess I'm interested also in. And it can be that. I guess what I'm saying is it can be that e- like, you know. It wasn't easy getting him elected, getting those people. But like now that the, all of those things are in place in the blink of an eye, people's lives can alter. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize how much, you know, for marginalized people, for women, for people of color, how many things you are able to do without thinking about it that are like Supreme Court decisions that are legislated and that that can change in the blink of an eye. I'd like to look at Texas specifically and these three pieces of of legislation because i'm curious what the hints or the indication are or how they relate right and you said we're turning the clock back to whenever uh pre-slavery maybe or like just right before you know because as far back as they can go slavery was still going on in texas uh after uh the uh, emancipation proclamation yeah after the civil war was over uh and i i I just these three specific issues, they're culture war issues, but they're also indicative of something else. Right. So obviously there's women's reproductive rights and restrictions on abortion, huge restrictions on abortion. Um, There's voting suppression, which we've seen a lot of different places, introductions of uh, voter suppressive laws. And then there's this third one, which isn't getting as much attention, but I'm very interested in a conversation about this requirement that every person, athlete or attendee at every sporting event in Texas uh, will be required by law to stand for the national anthem, right? These other two culture war things, I feel like we've been dealing with this for a long time, right? Republicans know that there's only so many billionaires in this country, so you have to like not let poor people and black people and Latinos vote, right? Otherwise, they can't win any elections. That's fine. That makes sense in terms of strategy. It's a self-contained logic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, abortion, we've been talking about forever, obviously, at the very least, since Roe v. Wade in the early 70s. It's a divisive issue. It's a culture war issue. Uh, a lot of single issue voters are abortion voters. So that, OK, I mean, it's awful, but I understand it. Uh, requiring people to stand for the national anthem, especially for you know, these these legislators are, you know, self-described conservatives, right? These are people who don't want the government in their life. They don't want the government to tell them what to do. And they're really big on freedom and whatever freedom looks like uh, to them or how they define it. So to me, you mentioned this before the show. I've been thinking it, too. We use the word freedom a lot now to talk about why you shouldn't have to wear a mask because that infringes on your freedom. if somebody makes you wear a mask, right? I am having trouble reconciling that version of freedom with the same kind of people saying the government is mandating that you stand up for this song that we decided is important. Do you know what I mean? Do, do, can, can you unpack that a little bit? Do you understand why that this is part of the triumvirate now? I have a pretty, I have a, a strong theory about how I think some of these um, hypocritical and inconsistent things happen. Um, I think the place to look is, we were like talking about Kaepernick earlier, right? And sort of like taking a knee and like the upset. And I've, these things seem tied in my head, right? Um, and the upset of like his taking a knee during the anthem. What Americans really love more than actual rights, more than actual freedom, more than actual is like symbolisms. It's like the story, the religion of America, right? And so that's football, that's the flag, that's the anthem, that's um, NYPD, that's soldiers. We like, um, you can't criticize those things publicly. You can't do anything to critique those things publicly, even if, you know, we say we care about soldiers, but like we don't really take care of them when they return. But that's like, but don't say anything bad about them, right? Give them all the 
give the military all the money they deserve. And so I think in that vein, there's sort of, again, this like, it's to me, that law is actually just responding to people who would kneel during the national anthem and how un-American that idea is to certain people and enforcing people to comply with, it's fine to force people to comply with Americanness. I think is, is how they would say you should stand. Well, I mean, I wonder how much, and they're not, and it's not actual, they don't want freedom. They don't want freedom. They want, they want everyone to be free. They don't want everyone to have what they have. They want like a protected privilege and the illusion of freedom. That's not, I mean, we say those things, but that's not really at all what's on the table when you think about it. They don't want to have to think about what their privilege costs. That's what freedom, that's the freedom. And so if people are kneeling during my football game, I have to begin to think about, I am now entertained now. I don't like that. So make everyone stand so that I can pretend and be entertained. Well, the only reason this is a conversation is, as you mentioned, is because of Colin Kaepernick and the protests that followed, right? And Colin Kaepernick was protesting something specific. It's not like he didn't say, I don't like America. I don't like the national anthem. Colin Kaepernick was, you know, uh, becoming politicized and learning about oppression. And didn't even volunteer to explain why he was kneeling. Only talked about it when asked. Yeah. Yeah. So he wasn't imposing it, it on anyone. It couldn't have been a more silent protest. <laughs> but how much of it has to do with the fact that Colin Kaepernick's, you know, central issue was the murder of black people by the police? Do you know what I mean? Like, Sure. If he were kneeling in honor of our troops, he would still have a job. You know what I mean? Like that. Yeah. Absolutely. That was why it was upsetting. Absolutely. Yeah. If it he just had been kneeling for no reason, <laughs> people are like, okay, I was tired, or like whatever. They'd be like, okay, he's kind of an asshole. But we would have talked about that for like three weeks. Tops. It wouldn't have been an issue. It was only because he was making people think about this polarizing topic that made them angry and uncomfortable and a time and moment. Like, there's not a wider time than like Sunday foot, right? So, like, it's this time where, like, you're making people think about all the things you don't want to think about. Yeah. And they're angry well, about when, it. Yeah. And if you're a How white you person. you criticize and, America during football? If you're a white person watching football and you see Colin Kaepernick taking knees during this game, how dare you? you? You are then required to think about the oppression of black people in America before you watch black people kind of give each other concussions for three hours. You know what I mean? It's like a a difficult thing to try and reconcile. We're paying them millions of dollars for that. Why should we care? They're well compensated (laughs) to get their brain injury. Eming, what do you got? My question is how do they enforce the whole standing thing? And what is the punishment if you stand or don't stand? Like, Jay, oh, I'm sure they'll like it? stone you if you Fining? don't. Are you kidding? What does it mean? <laughs> how do you quantify that? Like, I don't understand. That's, and everyone's that's armed in Texas, so I wouldn't play with that. <laughs> also, a fair point. I wouldn't play around with it. Just go ahead and stand. If you're going, stand. I mean, I, I don't know what enforcement would look like. That's part of my question about this, partly because. Um, you know, like I remember there was a, a controversy uh, for years because in school, you know, you had to say the Pledge of Allegiance. You know what I mean? And then it was like, well, the Pledge of Allegiance has the word God in it. So it's kind of like a religion thing. And then, you know, we shouldn't. It's like that's a real debate. You know, we can have that conversation. But at least the government has something to do with it because public schools are funded by the government. Right. So it might be overreaching or it might be irrelevant. But at least that's within their purview. That's what the government does. They pay for schools so they can say or try to say what should be going on in the schools. But um, professional sports, the government has nothing to do with professional sports. They don't pay anybody's salary. They well, sometimes they do backroom deals to build a stadium. But, you know, all the time, all the time, (laughs) there's not a stadium that did not come with like some sweet 
Yeah. It's pork. Just a big a big barrel of pork <laughs> under All every stadium. The times. But but still the like an athlete, right? Because part of this is not just, you know, attendees. It's athletes. The athletes are required, right? People right. who are in the NFL and Major League Baseball, these are private union workers, mm-hmm. right? Uh, with pretty powerful unions, actually, because they have to fight off people who are even richer than them who are trying to exploit them. Um, it seems to me unenforceable. It seems to me like now is the time for Major League Baseball union and NBA union uh, and the NFL. I don't know. Maybe hockey doesn't mind. I don't know. Um, to kind of get together and be like, this is crazy. Like, you can't let the I government tell us what to have do. have a similar problem, though, which is... For once, I'm trying to like think of like a moderate way to express this idea. I don't know why. I like like now, all of a sudden, I'm like, I should say this is the nicest way possible. But I think sports, um, with the exception of basketball, but I think a lot of sports have worked very hard to appeal to a certain population who finds legislation like this popular. And so for them to come out, it's the same reason why like Kaepernick doesn't have a job because lots of fans made noise and lots of powerful people got upset by what he did and he was blackballed and they right it was in like if fans hadn't cared if a certain segment of the population had agreed with Kaepernick or wasn't upset by what he did he'd still be working those same people like legislation like that the same people who were like upset with Kaepernick for kneeling or vocal about it are going to be like if you don't want people to stand during your games or you're against the law that makes people stand during the national anthem after you've wrapped football in the national anthem, right? Like how central have we made that fucking song to football, right? I think this, they've, they've, I agree into a white supremacist corner. Sorry, yeah, I, tried. I get it, I right? I mean, this is ends. a lot. Of- <laughs> I got all the way to the end. That's fine. That was the cherry on top, and we needed it. Um, yeah, you I, like you know you you. My only pushback would be this. My only pushback would be this: the NFL never said, "Players, you have to stand for the national anthem." They never Come, did that. Yes. Players, players kept kneeling. They didn't right? even. I mean, the national anthem. Whatever the national. Anthem, that entire military commercial that takes place during football games, the military pays for that. that. They pay millions of dollars for that. They don't. Yeah. That doesn't just happen. Yeah. You're being marketed to. You're like getting, please sign up. Come, you people who are home watching football on a Sunday who don't want to go, who can't pay for college. Come. That's what. Like that's how the national anthem got there. It wasn't just yeah. some genuine love of the country. So, yeah, no, they didn't care. It wasn't required. But now all of a sudden, because it became political, then the backlash, if the backlash is also political and it's people who are saying we are more powerful than you dissenters and this is what we want this to look like and we can make it happen. Yeah, I just feel like even, you know, in the darkest days of that debate, you know, there was a conversation about, you know, that people did still have a right to take a knee. People who played for the Dallas Cowboys took a knee. The Dallas Cowboys as a team kind of joined arms and walked out on the field together. You know, there was a lot of performance, still more performance, but the performance wasn't just to squash the protest. The performance was we have to in some way try to accommodate this thing, engage it, right? Um, and in no small part, I think because, you know, the, the players have a voice like that and the players have a union and, you know, Kaepernick was very easy to kind of isolate and, and throw away, but a large group of people, you remember Rush Limbaugh was trying to buy a football team. Do you remember that? Rush Limbaugh wanted to buy a football team and the, the players league came together. You know, the, the NFL is a majority black league. Um, this was like 2015, 2016, right? You know, pre, pre Trump. Um, and it was just in the early stages and, you know, that's owning a, a, a franchise like that. I mean, that's America's equivalent of, of royalty. You know, it's like you have your own earlship and, and fiefdom, you know, you gotta be mega, mega rich to do that. So it's very hard to do. Mega, and those billion- connected. Yeah. And those billionaires can keep each other out. You know, if there's someone they don't like or they think that someone not like one of them. And it was the players union who broke that deal off because they said this guy is a racist pig 
and we don't want him owning a team. And they ceded to that. Rush Limbaugh does not own a football team. Yeah, but I sort of think think that like those, like we see that victory and we think progress and, but what we have, and we think power of the union, but I think what we have to be mindful of, right? We're in it right now is um, every time we win, they don't give up. They don't say, okay, we realize we were wrong or we should be hiring racists. What happens is they plan better. Right, they go back. So yeah, it doesn't like even though all that happened, it doesn't surprise me that they're still saying this all started when we let them kneel. Get that shit out of there. Yeah, it's it's a pretty powerful and unambiguous message from the state of Texas. My other question is this: like, I know there are a lot of jokes about Texas. We have our own like concept about you know people just roll their eyes and be like, oh Texas, you know. But Texas is a big place with a lot of different kinds of people, and it is very diverse, and corners of it are very progressive. There are a lot of Latinos there. There are a lot of Black people there. Um, I wonder about the geographic significance of it. You know, I guess the largest red state in the union, the most populous red state in the union, leading the charge on this, much in the way that California has tried until now, it looks like the wheels are falling off of the California experiment. California has tried to be, you know, national leaders in progressive legislation. Is It, it looks as if Texas is trying to position themselves as quote unquote national leaders. I just wonder if that's how they're positioning themselves. Because like this, the only, here's what I'm saying. Like, they're not... They're not really, nobody's being helped by any of this. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I know that sounds very obvious and very ridiculous, but like all of these laws are just like fucking with people. Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe they could rule. They're just, they just passed a law. They were like, hey, you know what? Uh, Only white people can be CEOs, right? That's, that's pretty crazy. That'd be a crazy (laughs) law. But I would say, but you know what? At least they're helping somebody. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, like there's a benefit. Res- a benefit occurs. Restricting abortions, restricting voting, nobody, and, and telling people you're going to jail if you don't stand for the national anthem. Like you're wasting a right. lot of legislative right. time just to fuck with people. Correct. I on this show, I told you my theory is they will burn this country to the ground before they share power. And this is the backlash. All this Black Lives Matter, all this progress that's happening, this is the reaction. You get, you know, an AOC making laws. Yeah, this is what's, this is the, they're not like, oh, we should be changing our mind. They're like, no, if the system is allowing people like that to think they're equal to us, we burn it all down. We go back even further. Yeah, they don't, this, this is sort of how I think about how insane this is. I don't believe, for example, that the men of Texas, and especially the conservative men of Texas, I don't believe that they want to live in a world where every pregnancy they create has to result in a child. I don't believe oh, no. that for one no, no, single no. second. Um, so it's not they actually- They don't have all- to because they have money. So they Correct. could just drive to Louisiana like, this is not the or Oklahoma. This we're creating for ourselves. Yeah. These are just sort of like, we're oppressing people, not yeah. us. Well, that was a rich. You can help me out on this. You can help me out on this because you're an attorney and you know these kinds of things. I don't know. My understanding, my understanding (laughs) of Roe v. Wade, and we're going to have a conversation about this. I know the irony of two men talking about Roe v. Wade, but the the issue, what? Well, it's true. I wasn't going to say it. I was literally not going to say anything. I'm just going to sit here, drink my water. That's it why I said be more it. More of a theoretical concept not, for my life. But I do ahead. not. It, I do not endorse a two-man debate, a conversation about women's reproductive rights. I, this is just. This is just a point that I want to make about the way that the government works and who is affected by laws. Right. The idea of Roe v. Wade was some states you can get abortions, some states you couldn't. Right. So if if a, a woman lived in a state where you couldn't get an abortion and she had some money, she could go to the next state and get an abortion. But if the woman in the state where you couldn't get abortions didn't have money, she couldn't go. So it became an issue of access, right? So that the only way to protect that right for people so that it wasn't something that was only available to people with money was to make it legal everywhere all the time, right? I don't 
understand how this is any different, right? Because as you're saying, the people who sign this legislation, when they inevitably, you know, get their young mistress pregnant, they just put her on an airplane to Beth Israel in New York City and she gets her abortion there. If she wasn't she, already there. Yeah, if she wasn't already there. <laughs> you know? Like, uh, it's it's obvious, I guess. Maybe it's not interesting to point out these ironies, but I just feel like what kind of justification legally now, if this thing does go all the way to Supreme Court, would the courts have to overturn Roe v. Wade or whatever to reevaluate Roe v. Wade, except to say, yeah, you're right. Only people with money can have abortions. I I think they're going to go bigger and farther than that. I think that they're, they've been chipping away at reproductive rights all along. And we've sort of like heard all of these arguments about even when life starts. So I think if they get the opportunity to bring this to the Supreme Court, they're going to go big. They're not going to go with arguments that lost before they're going to want to relitigate the whole thing with the notion that like not every Supreme court justice that's on the bench now sees Roe v. Wade as sacred as everyone else does. Just because they're in that place. Same question for forcing people to stand for the national anthem. How's that going to get past the Supreme court? I mean, I'm not like, that may not uh, like by the, but who, yeah, that may not, but like, it doesn't matter because by the time it gets that far, uh, you will have already dragged yeah, so off a bunch of people is, to jail for protesting. Because I basically. sort of think the legislation like that is like a win-win for the people who do it because they're like either it will pass or people will fight it and we'll still get the support of the people yeah. putting it forward. And we yeah. will have identified enemies of America by the people <laughs> who fight it. It's like a win. It's a win-win. There's no loss for them. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Although they do seem to be on a roll. Uh, so <laughs> a lot of wins. <laughs> um, I want to transition a little bit to talk about someone who's not a Republican or from Texas. Uh, and that is our current president, Joseph Biden. Mm. You remember him. I do. Uh, many of us voted for him. It comes across and- my timeline so infrequently, sometimes <laughs> I forget about him. <laughs> Now, I have to I have to preface this by saying on this show, I have said many times that once Joe Biden was elected, even when he was running for president, as many as problematic as he was, I really liked the idea of like being able to go going back to like not really caring that much about who's president or what they're doing. Just kind of like not really, you know, like staying aware of what's going on in the world, but not like obsessively following. Right. right? So I looked away for a while. I have to tell you, I, I wasn't I wasn't really paying attention. And then I looked back. Um, he's gotten himself into quite a pickle. Is that that the right word? (laughs) A barrel. A barrel of pickles. Um, And and, and by doing things that I think, I don't know, man, this is not a defense of Biden, but these are things that if you told me he was going to do them, I would say, wow, that's a big risk for something that I personally would support, right? Yeah. What does it it look like to get troops out of Afghanistan after we've been there for 20 years? Just leave. I would say... We've been here 20 years. Back out. Just back if I just, out. If I just back read the headline, I would be like, leave man, that's brave. Shit. You want to leave some helicopters and weapons over there? Whatever. But they don't Americans. work, remember? They're broken. Leave them too. Leave up. Let's go. Check out. Check out. Let's go. So is it fair to say that your assessment of the situation is like this was a good decision that was coming from a good place? It was time for us to leave Afghanistan. It was just poorly executed. Is that is that where I you stand? I have so many opinions about this, but I mean, I'm someone who thinks we never should have been there. Right. I'm someone who thinks. I don't even know what we were doing there. Like, what could we have been doing there that 20 years later, this is the state that we left it in? 20 years, it didn't even take them a day. 20 years, it all collapsed. What were we doing? What was all that money? What were all those lives doing that it toppled in the blink of an eye? Like my, for me, the bookend of this is, I was obviously in New York on 9-11. I was in law school. I was on a dorm on 3rd Street and Broadway. Uh, And I was on the street when the second plane hit. Uh, So at that time, we were still thinking that this was an accident, that like something had happened and it had hit the first tower. But then obviously when a second plane hits the other tower, we all know a thing has happened. Um, And from there, I couldn't take my eyes away. But you could see these 
debris flying from the building, I'm about to cry. And then we realize those are people. People are like jumping out of the building. And then we go into this ridiculous war for no reason. And like the image that I see and our withdrawal is people falling out of planes. And so like that reminded me, like that's just sort of like, we made nothing better in the two decades that we spent there. I don't think we're any safer from whatever enemy we thought we were fighting. Um, We've only sort of like increased hate domestically of Muslims. And so like, I, yeah, I I do think we should have withdrawn, but I would imagine that that should come with like some kind of plan and some kind of protection for the people who helped us. Right. And so we just sort of like, it's as if Monday people were like, we got to be out by Wednesday at noon. Well, let me ask. I'm I'm just curious for my own. That's how know, it looks, and there's no reason reconciliation. The spin machine that it, like that's just how it and it feels, and it there's no like really explanation for like how is that? I mean, I've not lived through a twenty year war before, so I was like, is this how all wars look when you when you leave? Vietnam kind of looked like that. Maybe this is just what it is. Maybe Biden just as old as he is, he was like, it, this is just. But it doesn't seem like it had to be that way. Well, let me ask you this. As a person, I mean, obviously, you know, your experience on 9-11, very impactful, very traumatic. Uh, You know, the the invasion of Afghanistan was not too long after that. The explanation was we figured out who did this and what group it was. And, you know, we know either where they are or where they got support and who they got support from. And so we're going to go into Afghanistan, at least at, at that level. When they were talking about it in that way, did it kind of make sense to you as a person at that time? Like, you know, this horrible thing was perpetrated and there needs to be no. some kind of military response or you still no, felt like I did. Like I was n- I. I just never believed it just seemed too convenient and it it never really from my memory was just like weapons of mass destruction that could be used to attack America. Right. And there was never really a direct tie between that country and nine 11 or Saddam Hussein and nine 11. So I was never on board. Well, that's right. I'm talking about Afghanistan before Iraq, when we first went to Afghanistan and they explained the, you know, the Taliban, Taliban support. So I was just sort of like always distrustful. I was like, we were just. Yeah. You know, that, that's a healthy. There. We're just over yeah. there, one thing into another. Yeah, but what I thought—I mean, I, I mentioned this because we had Mishgan on, and I don't know if you've met Mishgan before, but she's Afghan, does a lot of organizing in the Afghan American community. Are you shaking your head, Emi? Did I get something wrong? No, I'm saying they haven't met. Oh, it's agreeing with you by shaking your head. No. Going. <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't asking for a response. Um, I was just never mind. Yeah. She was on the show and she kind of helped to contextualize a lot of things because she's exactly the right age to have witnessed this as a young person. And her parents were you know, from Afghanistan um, and had a lot of background for us. But uh, she she said this, you know, we, we had a, a panel when we were all working at Pacific News Service together right after 9-11 about, you know, state of affairs. What does this mean for young people? What does it mean for young people in the military? What does this mean for young Muslims? You know. A, a very good conversation. And she said, I'm very worried. You know, she's very concerned for her family who was in Afghanistan during the invasion. She said, but I'm also worried for my American friends who are in the military because there's no way out of Afghanistan. She just, started, you know, it was, rolling on into one it was a history lesson. She was saying this on, you know, September 12th or whatever. You know what I mean? Like she knew culturally, she's like, things don't, you know, it's like, they'll just hide in the mountains. They'll just wait until you go and then they'll just come back. And it kind of felt like that's what happened. It, in a, my, my analogy is this. It's kind of like, you know, uh, uh, a girl like has her boyfriend over the house and they're like making out. And then like the parents are like, are you up there? And they bust in the room and then the boyfriend's like hides in the closet. 
you know, for a second. It's like, is, is there somebody in here? And like, no, no, there's nobody here, you know. And then as soon as the parent closes the door, the boyfriend comes out of the closet and just gets goes. They go right back to making out. Does that does that analogy? Does do you know what I mean? Like, like it really felt like about your teenage years. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to ask that question. Like, is this a personal experience that you have? <laughs> These, things These things happen. These things happen in war. These things happen in life. Only to him. Do they happen? <laughs> I, but right, doesn't it feel like that? It was just like the Taliban was like, "Oh, the Americans are coming. All right, let's just hide out till they till they leave." And then they just hit out. Nothing nothing happened to their organizational I structure. I can never sort of tell if I have a friend who was a military intelligence in Afghanistan. He did I don't two at least two tours, and one of the things that he sort of like said was, "I just feel like we inspire more people to join by being here. Like every time we're here, every time we do something, every time there's an op." Every time, like every time you hear that people's civilians or families have died, um, we're not like reducing the number of enemies. We're sort of inspiring new generations. Um, And I think that that's a component of the war that like being here in America and never really having constant war um, in your life, we can never sort of understand that dynamic of like people who aren't who like are very who are we imagine ourselves as like over there liberating and people if you're not evil you love us here you love us coming to spread democracy um and they're like nope that is not everyone's experience of our presence there that to some it is a life-altering trauma um that they want to rail against and rebel against yeah that's fair and i'm also interested in this idea of you know a recruitment tactic you know the more you hear about the military the more you you know, the more the military is in people's minds, the more people are considering it as an option. It reminds me a little bit of your explanation of the national anthem at a football game, right? It doesn't have anything to do with how much people love America. It's the Pentagon is actually paying money uh, for a commercial before, you know, and, and a lot of money. They're, they're putting their own, I wonder how much in their budget. I mean, Millions. they're paying the NFL a lot of money, but also like, you know, they have flyovers with stealth bombers. Like uh, flying a stealth bomber is, it's like every time it takes off, it's like there's $20 million. Why does the military gone. have that huge band? What do they do? <laughs> that is very expensive. <laughs> is there a better use for those? Yeah. Things? Every time, you know, somebody from the military like actually sings the anthem, I'm kind of like, is this your this your job in the military? What's going on here? Yeah. Like, do they have a music room? Surely. I mean, the band is pretty good. A lot of those singers are pretty good. You know, it seems like maybe there's another maybe American Idol instead of the military or something, you know, stream stream it. We don't need a band. <laughs> yeah, just just pipe it in. We already know how it sounds, you know. <laughs> the color guard. I wonder that about the color guard people too. So you guys are very good at carrying flags and marching into a football game. Circumstance. You get trained. It's very expensive. Okay. And they. Put I know. Emi was JROTC at George Washington High School, which is where I was though. in. Which is where I was in JROTC. Did you know that? That we were in ROTC <laughs> at the same high school, not at the same time, but at the same oh, high that school. That would be weird. It wasn't at the same time because I'm older than her. But yeah, I was in ROTC because I was like, I don't want to do gym because I don't want to change. If you asked me the people least likely to be in ROTC, (laughs) you would have tied. You would have tied. I was I was in it for the outfits. Honestly, I liked I liked the clothes. I thought the clothes were cool. What? What? You liked polishing that shit every week? I got high off that yeah. shit. Wow. <laughs> Brasso. <laughs> well, also, let's let's be real. I flunked and dropped out. So it's not, you know, okay. I wasn't like a, a shining star of that program. <laughs> that was a long time ago, folks. I was probably in ROTC. I was in ROTC before 9-11. How about that? I was, perspective oh, that's things. funny. I was in it during 9-11. Wow. And I was in okay, the. You gotta, oh. I, I was in the room when they said to go home because they were like, "Oh shit, the towers! <laughs> Y'all need to go." You were in the ROTC room. Yeah, I was downstairs. Wow. It was. Uh, it was before. It was I'm surprised they period. didn't give you a gun. Be like, all right, no, we, this is what we traded for. <laughs> <laughs> it was a different we didn't have time. Guns. It was a different time. We did not have guns. <laughs> a lot has changed as in I twenty know, years. A lot has changed in twenty years. Now I had a friend. Was, I had a friend who who joined the Navy right before 9-11 like really like completed basic training was in the navy like 
let's say August 2001, right? And while he was in uh, basic training, he wrote me a letter uh, telling me how terrible it was. And then at the top of the letter, it said Navy, like as an acronym. And he said, Navy stands for never again volunteer yourself. That, that was his, <laughs> that's what he learned. That's a great acronym. Training. <laughs> I might steal and that. Then, and then we found out that the on the day of 9-11, he AWOLed because they got orders. They're like, all right, we got it. They scrambled all their, you know, the, the, the ship that the ship that he was on was going to New York Harbor. And he was like, nope, I'm out. And he went like, right back to his. I don't know what you thought his, I came here for, yeah. but it yeah. wasn't that. <laughs> he went right back to his grandma's house in Daly City <laughs> and uh, he was never heard from again. Fog. I hope. Head towards the fog. I hope he did. He went to. Sh- shout out to Ron Novicio. I just I know I just put you on blast, but you're a good guy. I love you. Uh, Wherever uh, you may kid. be, he could sing just like uh, uh, Casey and JoJo. He had a, a beautiful voice of an angel. Maybe he could have been one of the people singing the national anthem. Yeah, See, they had a role for him. That's what he should have said on on nine eleven. He'd be like, I only sing. You, wait till you hear me sing, though. <laughs> I want to be in um, one of those band joints that sings at the yeah. Super Bowl. <laughs> Can't tip me out. Just, just, just me and the weekend gonna be are gonna be singing at the Super Bowl. <laughs> um, okay, well then I know we touched on nine eleven and and some nine eleven experiences while talking about Afghanistan, but I'm interested in how these events relate. Obviously, it's not a mistake. Joe Biden has a calendar. He knows that you know it's very symbolic, or would have been very symbolic, to be able to withdraw troops. Uh, in a sane way before September 11th. He wasn't able to do that, unfortunately. But um, it, now it backfired because now we're going to have the 20th anniversary of September 11th while Afghanistan is still in the midst of this unknown chaos, right? It's kind of just like a black box at this point. It's like, who knows what they're going to do? You know, nothing we can do about it. Um, and I don't know, you know, for all of us, I, I'm, I'm going to ask you first, Travis, like, is does that have a specific resonance now that you're like, here we go. 20th anniversary of 9-11. I'm reflecting on my own personal traumas. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, um, people that we tried to help and slash the people that the U S military tried to vanquish, a uh, completely unsuccessful mission. Uh, and where, where, and where does that leave us? I don't know. What do, do you have thoughts on that, Travis? Yeah, I think the problem is America's not good at just helping in a way that's not also exploiting. Um, And so that's what the situation needs. The situation needs help. It's not exploitation. And I don't think we're the country for that. We've not done it so far. This is the mess that we made. And I don't know that we have the leadership to clean it up. Yeah. Does it just highlight the fact, though? If we wouldn't, we have. You know what I mean? Like, every party has had a part in Afghanistan. It's not like, at this point, Everyone has sort of like helmed a lead and what got us here. Um, so I'm not confident that we even know how to fix it in a in a way that doesn't make it worse. I some of this, you know, I, I visited Virginia recently and um, saw some young nieces and nephews of mine, and they went to the spy museum they're like eight and 10 and they were like, man, the spy museum was boring. I was like, what do you mean? That sounds so interesting. You know? And and their mom was like, well, they didn't, they don't really know what the cold war was. Do you know what I mean? Like, so for them, what is a spy? Like, I don't know, like maybe it's just something from the movies or whatever. Like the whole idea of global espionage, because there were two world superpowers that were each trying to take over the whole world at the same time. Like that's, you know, you need to have some background on that. Like Captain America solved all that. Calm down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, why are we still talking about this? We have the Avengers, the end. Um, And and that's fair. There's no reason that an eight year old and a 10 year old should be well-versed in the cold war. But as it relates to this situation, all of this stuff really just seems like, booms and echoes and echo booms of the cold war still now the problem in iraq going all the way back to the you know iran iraq war which is like a proxy war between the soviet union and the united states uh the creation of the taliban as a response to the soviet union invading afghanistan and our presence trying to rectify it our own kind of echo of it um i it's even now 
you know, in some ways, because Russia is trying to position itself globally as like still a power, even though it's not the Soviet Union, every vacuum that we depart, right? Like I, I say like, oh, that's good. You know, like we're non-interventionist, you know, like say what you will about our previous president, but he didn't really like invade anybody. He, you know, the, like part, the cornerstone of America first was like, we're not the world's police. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. You know, like that's one thing that this that's guy right. is peddling that I can think about. But what I failed to consider is and like I always wondered if he angered the power structure by taking that position. I'm sure he angered the power structure all the time, you know, but the yeah, power but structure ultimately like, fucked with their pocket. Well, nothing really fucked with their pocket because they were like, hey, listen, here's all we need. We need a couple Supreme Court justices and we need massive tax cuts. And he's like, I got you, fam. And then he was like, I'm also not going to do any wars. And they're like, damn, you sure? And he's like, yeah, it's like, OK, all right. All right. We'll get the next guy. But also, mm-hmm. I'm going to get us out of one. Yeah. I mean, and then I, <laughs> I guess. But I mean, you know, like I, I, I just remember part of the reason that I didn't completely like lose my mind during uh, the last presidency is because I think that the experience from basically the Bush years, right? The experience from 9-11 until Obama was elected was so chaotic and apocalyptic that I had, I felt like I've taken my roller coaster ride. Do you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I can't be, I can't be re-traumatized. And now that those things, I don't know, what, what do you call it? Are they winding down? Is it like, you know, regardless of how we left, it's like, we're not in Afghanistan anymore. Like full stop. You know what I mean? Period. Uh, we're not really in Iraq anymore, really, you know, and that's something that, you know, I I was uh, dreaming of, you know, 2003, 2004, 2005, I was like, this is a nightmare. Get us out of there. Now it's happening. And it's like, well, I don't know, man, maybe that's not so great either because you create a vacuum, right? Like how quick is whatever China, Putin, you know, whoever else going to like swoop into Afghanistan and kind of, and kind of fill that void. Right. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess like you said, just don't go there in the first place. Don't go there in the first place. And yeah. then also Stay I'm, your sure, ass home. I'm like, why do I care about, the, why do I care about the vacuum? That's a genuine question. I'm like, why do we care about the vacuum? Why? I mean, as American citizens, you and I, Travis and Russell, Correct. or, okay. Um, I'm concerned about it. I think because this is like an ideological thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that we should be the police of the world. We should not. We should not. We're not very good at it. We're awful at um, it. But it's almost like, and now I'm going to open up a whole other discussion, just the regular old police, right? Where it's like, man, the police are really messed up. But does that mean that we shouldn't have police at all? I don't know. That's a complicated question. What do the alternatives look like, right? Uh, I kind of feel like that about this. I don't think like, yeah, we need to be in Afghanistan. Yeah, we need to be in Iraq. But I do wonder like when horrible human rights violations are happening or there's a genocide, like what should happen? I don't really know. I don't know the answer to that. Right. Like, I guess, you know, League of Nations and, you know, United Nations, and I, I, I guess. Um, and maybe we can move to a place like that. I guess the idea of superpowers, superpowers only exist when there has to be more than one. You know, right. If there's only if there's only one superpower, it's just kind of like now you're just like a despot, you know? Yeah, I'm all for. Battling human rights violations. Right. But it's sort of like one, no one ever checks America on its human rights violations. Um, And then two, did we do that in Afghanistan? Is that what we really did? Um, I mean, I think I I, I will answer that that because I think it's important to tell Americans to get support when we send our sons and daughters over there, I understand that that's what we tell people, but given the state that it was in when we left 20 years later, I am again left with what did we accomplish? What did we do in 20 years that if we pulled out, they were left so fragile? Um, What were we doing? What did we give them? How did we empower them? What were we there was a generation of women who got to go to school who wouldn't have gone to school otherwise. That's that's significant. And now Correct. But, right. But we didn't empower now they them. can just if that just know, relied on us being there, we empowered nobody. And we just should have we just should have then said we are colonizing Afghanistan. Yeah. 
But, but that was the mission. The mission was like, let's train, you know, their own defense forces to be able to preserve this right. government. But we clearly did not Taliban. do that. I mean, to what extent can you prop them up? I don't know. The, to what extent were a, a section of of the population receptive to the Taliban coming back. Do you know what I mean? Like we, we talk about right. other countries as monoliths forgetting like we're not a monolith, right? The whole world must and have that is also like, the other oh. part. You can't spread democracy. It has to be organic. The people have, you know what I mean? Like you can't impose it on folks. Yeah. That's kind of counter. It's like, uh, there's like an irony there, right? Like and also, you gotta be democratic right now. To, we don't have the credibility to do that. Also, like it can also be that we do not have the trust of a certain group of people for them to trust us and our form of government. Maybe we are not the leaders that need to be on the ground doing that work. Not everyone thinks of us as freedom fighters. Yeah. Although that mission, democracy kind of used to just be a code word for capitalism, you know, like during the Cold War. Yes. Yeah. Like during the Cold War, I was like, all right, you know, we got commies trying to take over the world, but we want to sell shit everywhere. So let's go to places that, you know, and they're not democracy. really not buying and selling that much and shit. The free market. And, and then, you know, impose a democracy, impose a democracy and then also kind of open up a, a free market slash. Yeah. Your KFC, you know, what have you. Sell jeans. Yeah. Well, you know, people love blue jeans, man. It's hard to argue with. It's not just marketing. I think they're inherently good. Okay. Can we please, please finish our conversation by talking about Mariah Carey and the movie Glitter? I will always (laughs) talk about Mariah Carey. I will never miss an opportunity to talk about. It is a common thread throughout our conversations. I I never anticipate how she's going to come up with that particular movie, but she always... The reason I mention it is because we, in a historical timeline, right, there is some overlap with the events of September 11th. Am I right? Let's Mm -hmm. let's talk about those dates. How do they overlap? You know, to what extent was Mariah Carey trying to help us heal? My connection to that is, um, I was in, again, I was in New York 9-11 on 3rd Street, after 9-11 in Manhattan, there was no traffic below 14th Street for like weeks, maybe even months. And a movie theater nearby was giving free movies. <clears throat> and the movie that we went to see was Glitter. And not even the sadness of 9-11 could make that a hit. You knew early on. <laughs> This was bad stuff. That did not lift the mood. Have you watched it, it since then? Did it then? take you? <laughs> have I what? Have you watched it since then? Like I have. You, if you watch it again, you have. Does it bring you back it. to that day? Yeah, or is it, is it, totally it does. Separate? And I was like, nope, this was still bad. Like I wasn't just like sad. It, this, you know, it wasn't as if like nothing could penetrate. No, this was bad. This was a bad. I like the music better. The music. The soundtrack is a, deserved a little bit. The soundtrack deserved better than the movie. Uh, yeah, it was a, not a very good film. I you know what other movie came that. out that I feel like was only successful because of 9-11 that had the opposite effect? Tell me. I think the movie was called Hardball. Hardball? Yeah. I think it was like a Keanu Reeves movie, something with baseball and kids. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, my yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like it was the return. No, you're right. Reeves. Wasn't, wasn't that a you're Disney right. movie? Yeah, no. American sports Disney. comedy. Keanu Reeves. Oh, Diane Lane is in it. Yeah. Uh, what did that? Did it come out like the the week after Same 9/11 week. or something? Yeah. Wow. Well, I. And maybe I don't know that's, why these that's stick the, in my mind. That's the movie that we needed at the time. I believe there was also a bit of like white savior action going on in that movie as well. That's the entire movie. Okay. All right. Good, good. I just want to make sure. That was the pitch. That was literally, that is the movie. Just a tad of white savior action going on. (laughs) Just a drop. He's still Neo. (laughs) That's exactly what happened. They were like, this guy should be Neo. He's saving. This is it. This is, that was his audition. For the Matrix. Well, I, he'll be Will a lot of things. You know, I watched, I watched, I watched Speed recently, and I remembered, man, man, that was a good movie, and he was so good in that movie. I wanted to be him in that movie, and then it made me realize, you know what else? Uh, Point Break. 
God, he was so cool in that movie. He was a bank robber slash quarterback slash undercover cop. Uh, I just I was when I saw that film, I was 13. I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to be a quarterback, uh, bank robber, undercover police officer. And then Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, when I, you know, was just the right age, let's say, you know, 10 years old or so, where I was like, yeah, I want to be a a mall rat in the San Fernando Valley. (laughs) And so that's what you chose. Uh, no, I, I didn't pursue that end. I pursued none of those ends, actually. Which which Keanu Reeves do I most resemble? I don't know. Which one's the one where, like, somebody has a terminal illness or something? Or uh, was it November, November Rain? Sweet November. I hate <laughs> I'm that the, I know that. But yeah, I'm the Sweet November that. Keanu, I guess. I would, Or no, Parenthood. I'm very much like the, the Keanu from Parenthood. I don't know if you remember him, but he's... Uh, There's so many the brothers. Keanu's. He's the brother's girlfriend, and it's like this 10-year-old, 11-year-old yes. kid. He's like really pissed off because his dad abandoned their family. And he's just like really it's, – it's Joaquin Phoenix, in fact, plays that kid. And he really looks up to Keanu. He's like, wow, like a positive you know, role model or whatever. And he goes to him. He's like, man, he's like complaining about his dad. And Keanu says something like, oh, you know, in this country, you got to have a license to do everything. You got to have license to drive a car. You got to have a license to catch a fish. But any loser can be a dad. <laughs> I was like, wow, Keanu, you really broke it down. <laughs> Wait, did you guys like my Keanu Reeves impression or you your didn't like my Keanu Reeves Your video is disabled, <laughs> so all we hear is the, your voice. Yeah. And so I'm just oh, okay. how we got here. I don't even know how we got here. But I feel like it's my fault. So I'm so sorry, Andrew, And I just gave up trying to stop it, so whatever. Sorry, America. Wait, did you, does that mean you didn't hear my um, Keanu Reeves impression? We absolutely heard your we Keanu heard Reeves it. impression. We just cannot see you. Ooh, I can thank see God. you. I, thank I, God. It, it, all my senses were assaulted <laughs> by that story. Okay. I can smell it. All right. I have only two more pop culture 9-11 things that I think are relevant. One, um, The Strokes' very first album was scheduled to come out on September 11th because new albums come out on Tuesdays. Um, and that album was delayed because they had a song on there called New York City Cops Ain't So Smart. So they had to go back and reprint a whole bunch of new CDs and then re-release it without that song. But you might remember that that there was like an early 2000s kind of like indie rock explosion with all those the bands. And it started with the Strokes. And I kind of felt like, is this uh, in some way related to 9-11 or an echo of September 11th in our culture? Because up until then, we were listening to a lot of like Ashanti and like boy bands. It was all very soft and poppy. And then I felt like these guys showed up and they were just like gross and grimy and they couldn't really play their instruments very well. And they did a lot of cocaine and they didn't take showers. And it felt like America was like that. We were doing a lot of cocaine. We weren't taking showers. Well, by we, I mean me. By, by we, I mean me. <laughs> I was like, America. Mr. America. <laughs> yeah, but there was a cultural shift at the time. And then the, the one other... Uh, My culture never cult- shifted towards not showering. <laughs> that's very good of you. Thank you. Thank you, Travis. Uh, that's fine. Agree to disagree <laughs> on hygiene. Fine. Um, I went to, I had, I would say a similar experience to your glitter experience, except that everything went exactly the opposite. As soon as people were doing stuff again, you know, whatever, September 13th, September 14th, I had tickets to see Sade in concert for the Lover's Rock tour. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm going to go do this. You know, like uh, at that time, I loved that album. I loved Sade. I was listening to that album every day. I would read all the obituaries in the New York Times for all the people who died um, in the towers. And I would listen to Sade and I would cry at my breakfast table. You know, like I she, she kind of helped me get through that time. And I went to that concert Um and, you know, she didn't say anything. There was no, like, American flag. There was no, like, moment of silence. She just did what she did best and 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 sounded great and looked great and soothed everybody and calmed everybody. And then her encore was this song where the chorus was, you didn't suffer in vain. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's like a secret track on Lover's Rock. It's, like, not even a very well-known song, but she sings over and over again, you didn't suffer in vain, you didn't suffer in vain. Everybody cried. Every, it was a big arena. Everybody in that arena was bawling, 
sobbing. Um, so if you're ever wondering if there's anything Sade can't do, there isn't. There isn't anything that Sade can't do. And I wish that you had been able to go see Glitter and ha- have a similar experience. Like, yes, music. You know, music I will tell is the you answer. that Glitter was the experience I needed at the time. I needed something to dislike. <laughs> That's true. I needed we, we something needed a common to get enemy. of. We needed a com- common enemy. Yeah, yeah, it makes you feel better. Ridicule is uh, is that good was for my what you. I've learned. Yes, uh, as someone once told me, if you don't have anything nice to say, come sit next to me. <laughs> uh, okay, we managed to work Mariah Carey in there. Thank you very much, uh, Travis, for going through all of these topics uh, with us. There's there was a lot to discuss. We'll obviously have to have another show very soon because it really seems like. You know, um, Uncle Joe is just asleep at the wheel, man. We got to have a longer conversation a about nap. that guy. He's taking a nap. <laughs> just a long nap, six month long nap. Uh, okay, yes. Yeah, so thanks to you, Travis, for being here. This was a, a wonderful conversation. Thanks, as always, of to course. our fearless leader, the person who keeps us or tries to keep us on topic and always keeps us sounding good and starting on time. Our producer, Eming Piazzai. And thanks as always to our listeners. Until next time, Quest On, everybody. This episode of Quest On Media's Margin Call was produced in Richmond, California.